well, good morning, church. Whoo! Man, I, I think about our city that we live in, uh, this beautiful city of Orlando and the greater Orlando area and central Florida in general, and I think about uh, all of the folks that do not have the extraordinary privilege of knowing the freedom that it is to know Jesus and to have Him as Savior and to live their lives following Him. And I want to be a part of changing that. And so when we are here and we sing together, Spirit of God, rise up in us, like empower us, like send us, go with us. Uh, man, like I get stirred up and I'm like, yes, do that. I mean, how many of you here would like to see a revival of the kingdom of God in our central Florida? I mean, I want to see that. And so just again, an encouragement, like let's ask God for that all the time, Right. And then let's have the courage to say, God, I'm not asking you to go do that. I'm asking you to do it with us, to invite us to be part of that story. So super excited. Uh, I don't know if you know this here. You may, you may not. But here at Mosaic Church, we take the teaching of God's Word to the church very, very seriously. We take it very seriously because God takes it very seriously. And he speaks to the nature of how seriously he takes it in Scripture. And we feel that responsibility and weight. Here at Mosaic Church, in these gatherings, the gatherings of God's people, where the Word of God is taught collectively, uh, you will have noted that in regularity, uh, those who are teaching on this stage uh, are those who are elders at this church. We look to Scripture, and we see that in Scripture, the responsibility of the authoritative teaching of God's Word to the collective of His people in the gathering was the responsibility of the elders of the church. Not a elder, but the elders. And so even as an elder teaches up here, myself or Joel or Brady or some of the others that might teach, the other elders during the week have been in the teaching teams with us, uh, dialoguing and wrestling through the passages, and they are in this place worshiping with us, and we speak into each other's lives when we feel like we are not communicating something clearly that is in God's Word. So I just want you to know, we take that very seriously, and we follow the direction of God's Word that the regular teaching in the gathering of God's people is done by the elders. It's their responsibility. And yet, the Scripture does not prohibit us from inviting on occasion someone to teach on our stage who is not an elder. Yes, uh, certainly a congregant, a deacon, a guest that we have high reputation with, that we, that we vet and under the direction of the elders, but uh, the Scripture allows for this beautiful reality where we can experience the expertise or the experiences of some as they teach uh, under the Word of God and its authority and by the Spirit uh, here so that we can learn from them. And so you will find at Mosaic that on occasion, not in regularity, but on occasion, we will have a non-elder teaching here, whether they again be a deacon among us, one of our congregants, or uh, someone from the outside that we have strong relationship with. And 
today in particular is one of those days where the special nature of this Sunday lends itself to the expertise and experience of one among us. Uh, today is Pentecost Sunday. I don't know if you know that. It is a Sunday where we celebrate in the Easter journey. I know it feels like that was a long time ago, but we're kind of still in it, right, until today. This is where we celebrate the beauty of the coming of the Holy Spirit, where He empowers His people, and He begins. In John 15, uh, it says, uh, as Jesus is teaching, I will send a helper, and He will be my witness, and you will be witnesses with Him, empowered by Him. So, man, this is a special Sunday. And uh, we have someone super dear, not only to us, not all of you don't know them, but this church and to me, uh, that is going to bring their expertise and teach us today uh, as they have lived this out. Um, I have had the privilege to travel uh, with Lindsay Dennis for well over a decade now. I actually had the privilege of watching Lindsay and Kevin fall in love. Uh, I had the privilege of marrying them, so I have lived at the highest highs with them. Uh, and I have walked through the deepest valleys of the shadow of death with them and watched Kevin and Lindsay uh, walk into the darkest places this planet has to offer and watch her walk through it in the most godly and extraordinary manner. I have learned much from this woman. She is part of Crew, uh, formerly Campus Crusade for Christ. She has been part of that for a very long time. She has lived out on the mission field numerous times as she's headed out there. She has a giant heart for unreached people groups and especially the ones in hard places. Uh, she lives it out here alongside her husband. She is also uh, in this church uh, an incredible voice among us as she helps shape even the direction of this church. She is the wife of Kevin, who's one of our elders, and so her voice is in our elders' meetings and in our elder spaces also regularly alongside her husband as we get to hear from her. So this is a godly woman. She's also an author. She wrote an amazing book uh, called Buried Dreams uh, that if you haven't read, you ought to, about the hard journey that they had to travel through and God's hope that he brings in hard and, and places of grief. So just a wise, incredible woman and her experience, passion for the Spirit of God's empowerment of us to lead us as witnesses into the world is something that is inspiring and incredible to watch. So it is my honor and privilege this morning uh, to introduce to you guys Lindsay Dennis as she comes to uh, bring us uh, the beauty of what God has for us today. So would you give a warm round of applause as Lindsay comes on up here? And I'm going to just take a minute and uh, pray for Lindsay, and then I will uh, let her do what God has made her to do for us today. God, thank you so much for Lindsay and all that you have walked her through and all that you've done in her and all that you've done through her. And thank you for her passion for those who do not know you, for her passion to be a witness alongside you as you empower her and her passion to uh, teach and equip others to, uh, to also live under your power as witnesses of your gospel, of the redemptive work of Jesus. So God, now as she comes uh, to bring to us that which you have for us today, would you empower her words? Would you bless her? Would you fill her with your countenance? Would you use her and transform her as she spends time now leading us into the spaces that you have for us? God, we thank you for Lindsay and all that you've done in her life that gives her what she needs to be able to lead us now uh, into the spaces you need us to go. God, be with her, uh, use her, 
and transform her in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Lindsay. Well, good morning, everyone. That was a wonderful introduction. Um, I was concerned that Renault was going to take all my time. And now I'm just concerned he took a lot of my introduction. So I guess he just did that for me. Uh, but I came to Mosaic about 14 years ago because this cute guy named Kevin Dennis was coming here. And I was only going to be in Orlando for a year, or so I thought. And so I was like, oh, I'll just join you. And the very first message was on the Holy Spirit. And it's fitting today that I get to talk about the Holy Spirit. I thought if a church is going to talk about the Holy Spirit, then it's a church I need to be in because we cannot do this life without the Holy Spirit. So that guy, that cute guy, Kevin Dennis, is now my husband, and he's an elder here. And when we got married, we got married older in life, we knew that we wanted to have children. And six months into our marriage, we were pregnant. <clears throat> we found out 20 weeks into our pregnancy that the baby I was carrying would not live once born. We carried that baby to term, and she was born on September 1st, 2013. Her name is Sophia Kyla Dennis and she lived for 10 hours. We were devastated, it was a dark time, but God used his body to lift us up, to encourage our hearts. And in that time, God began to do a work in my life to offer my brokenness to others. And I began to see him use even my pain to bring the light of Christ to others who were in pain. Six months after that, we were pregnant again with another little girl who we found out also carried a similar condition. We carried her to term, and 14 months after we buried my first daughter, we buried my second daughter. She lived for 12 hours. And in that moment, all of the things that I had knew and learned about God, I began to not so much question his realness, but question how he worked. Question, is he worthy? Question, do you see me? And God began to do a work in my life through his word, through people, through prayers, and give me a deep, deep conviction of the worthiness of the gospel, no matter what he calls us into or what he calls us to walk through. And that he can take even the most broken pieces of our story and he can feed others. There's a woman by the name of Ruth Still. I don't actually know who she is, but I found this quote by her. And she says, if my life is broken when given to Jesus, it's because pieces will feed a multitude while a loaf will satisfy only a little lad. My hope is that as we talk about how the coming of the Spirit empowered his people to be the vessel which takes the gospel to the nations, that you would see how he is still doing that today through you and through me. One of the first times I saw God use me to be a vessel for him was in 1992. I was just 13 years old, and my dad took me with him on a missions trip to Moscow, Russia just two years after communism had fallen. And as a 13-year-old, I stood in classroom after classroom sharing the story of how Jesus had changed my life and inviting others to enter into relationship with him. I was incredibly nervous, incredibly awkward, and didn't really know what I was doing. <clears throat> but my dad trusted me, and I learned how to share the gospel in my own fumbled-through way, and God began to use me. And at the end of that week— we sat in a large auditorium for a huge outreach we were having. And I remember looking at the back, and there were people handing out Bibles. And I couldn't even see the people because they were covered with Russians who were running and practically leaping over one another to hold a Bible in their hands. I had never seen such a hunger for God. 
And four things I will never forget from that time. First, my dad invited me to participate in his work, even though I hardly knew what I was doing. And I was quite immature. I was 13. I was going through some stuff. And I remember asking him several years ago, I was like, Dad, what was it like, like bringing me over overseas for the first time to this um, just post-communist country? He's like, well, you asked a lot of why questions. He was very patient with me. Secondly, God empowered a little 13-year-old to have an impact for Christ. And I know there are little people in this room, and I want you to know that God can use even the littlest people to make a difference for his kingdom. He uses ordinary people to join him in his extraordinary work to bring the gospel to the nations. If he could use me, he can use anyone. Third, there is a world in desperate need of Jesus who are hungry to know him. The men and women I met there, they were hungry to know God. They had never heard of him. Many had never held a Bible, and they just wanted to know. And I remember even at 13, oh, to be that hungry. God, would you do something in my life to give me that kind of hunger for you? Fourth, there is joy in learning to give your life away to another. Even though I was so nervous every single time, I was so filled with joy every time I shared the gospel there. Every time I got to invest my life, my heart was filled with joy. Our lives were designed to be poured out. They were designed to be given away to another. If I had a large, I actually wanted to do this, but if I had a large bucket and didn't get around to it, um, and a sponge, a huge sponge, and I put it in water here and I pulled it out, it would get heavier and heavier. And the only way to get more water in would be to push it out. Our lives were to be designed to be like that. That the more the Holy Spirit would fill us, the more would come out of us. But sometimes we come into the church or into Christian spaces and we get filled up, filled up, filled up, filled up, filled up, filled up, filled up. <laughs> and nothing gets poured out. And eventually that sponge, it's heavier and heavier. And nothing more can fill it because our lives were designed to be poured out. In John 7, 37 to 38, he says, Jesus says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, from his innermost being, from the places deep within you, will flow rivers of living water. By this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were yet to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Out of me will flow rivers of living water, only through the Spirit's power. There are places in my life where what flows out of me is definitely not the Spirit. And Jesus reminds me, and he convicts me, and he says, Hey, Lindsay, this area, this area right here, would you bring that to me? So that more of my life-giving waters can flow out of you. In the original design of creation, which is still God's design for his people today, out of his presence would flow life. We see this in the Garden of Eden, where Moses takes a whole lot of time to tell us about not only the garden, but these four rivers that are in the garden. And in the Garden of Eden, you, probably, you might even skip over that because it's, it's uh, very descriptive. But these four rivers, what you need to know about them is they, the source of them is the center point of Eden, the center point of the garden, where the presence of God is, and the waters flow out, and they go everywhere, and they water the earth. And all throughout the redemptive story, 
This imagery is used of living waters that always come from the source, which is the presence of God. In Ezekiel chapter 47, Ezekiel has a vision of a temple. And in that temple, there is a river. And God's people were in exile at that time, and their temple had been destroyed. And here God reveals to Ezekiel a new temple. And in that temple, there is a river that flows underneath, and then it begins to trickle out of the south side of the temple. And he shows him this river, and it gets deeper and wider as it goes. And within 1.5 miles, he couldn't even cross it. But the astounding thing about this river is not only that it was flowing out of the center of a temple, of the temple, it's that it flowed into the Dead Sea. And then out of the Dead Sea, life began to flourish. And if you know anything about the Dead Sea, everything in the Dead Sea is dead. It's the lowest point of the earth. Nothing goes out of the Dead Sea. And here we have this vision of life-giving waters flowing out of the temple, flowing out of the presence of God, getting bigger and deeper and wider, flowing into the Dead Sea and giving life and healing to everything it encounters. Likely, Jesus was thinking about this when he said, out of me will flow rivers of living water. Turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts is actually a sequel to Luke. And Luke was the author of both Luke and Acts. And he wants us to know that you cannot separate the life and death and resurrection of Christ apart from the giving of the Holy Spirit. They go together. They work together. And in the book of Acts, if you go to Acts 1.8, Jesus is about to ascend back to heaven and has just told his disciples who watched him die and saw him risen to wait in Jerusalem for the promised Holy Spirit. And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or epoch which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And what we see throughout the story of Acts is that begins to happen. They are his witnesses. What is a witness? A witness just testifies to the truth of what they saw. So this is what they do. They testify the truth of what they saw, and the gospel begins to go out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And then the book of Acts kind of ends on a cliffhanger because it goes to Rome. And Rome, if you know anything about Rome, the phrase, all all roads lead to Rome, was the epicenter of the culture. And it's almost like a literary call from Luke to say the gospel is doing what God says it it will do, and it's going to this place that in that culture would be the roads that would lead to every other place, but it's not finished. For what God did when his spirit came upon the believers on that day of Pentecost, which we're about to unpack, was set in motion what we are still seeing him do today around the world, in our city, our neighborhood, and our families. We can often be fixated on the way in which the Holy Spirit came upon the life of the followers of Christ and forget the purpose of his coming. The Holy Spirit can move however he wants to move. All throughout history, he has moved in powerful ways to empower his people for a specific purpose. 
And here we see him show up in Acts chapter 2 to empower his people in a powerful way for a specific purpose. The whole of Acts could be summed up like this. The gospel of Jesus Christ will move forward. The gospel will go out to the nations, and it will be through the power of his spirit in his people. Go with me to Acts 2, 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And it actually literally says, not just when the day of Pentecost had come, some of your versions might say, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. And Luke wants to know that something was completed on this day. That word Pentecost just means 50th day. And it's the Jewish festival also known as the Feast of Weeks or Shabbat. And it comes every year, 50 days after Passover. <clears throat> In it, God's people brought the first fruits of the wheat harvest, declaring his provision and their trust that he would continue to bring the harvest in. Traditionally, passages in Ezekiel and Habakkuk were read, highlighting the powerful and supernatural presence of God, hearkening the day for him to do it again. One of those passages that were to be read during this time, I'm just going to give you a little glimpse of it, it was Habakkuk 3.1. And here Habakkuk says, Lord, I have heard the report about you and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Likely in the temple, they are reading from Ezekiel and Habakkuk, remembering the stories of when the temple had been destroyed, remembering their ancestors who had been exiled from the land, remembering the vision Ezekiel had of a restored temple and a mighty river flowing out of that temple, when suddenly everything changed. Verse 2, And suddenly there came from heaven a noise, like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. The Spirit comes in such a mighty way, in such a descriptive way, in such a profound way, because all the Jews in that temple understood. Any time they had ever heard the stories of the presence of God showing up, it always was often with some sort of wind or fire or loud noises. It would have immediately called to mind this image of the presence of God is in this place. But not only that, the presence of God was not just in the place. They began to see he was in his people. That once again, the gar like in the garden, life would flow. But this time it would flow out of the presence of God now living in his people who are now the temple of the living God. And what does the Holy Spirit do after he overwhelms his people with his presence, he speaks. What flows out of this new temple is the life of Christ and the words of Christ, and they cannot be separated. What does he speak? They're all amazed. They're hearing him speak in their own language. And in verse 11, it says, we hear them in our own tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God. 
Later on, when Peter takes a stand, he's speaking of Christ crucified and risen. All over the book of Acts, they're calling others to repent and believe. Acts 4.20, after the disciples were just told uh, by the authorities to stop speaking the name of Jesus, they say, for we cannot stop speaking of what we have seen and heard. And they just keep right on speaking. Acts 4.31, and when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Where does he speak? It begins in the temple, and it goes out. He speaks everywhere. And who does he speak through? It says specifically in verse 7, that everyone there was amazed and astonished, saying, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And Galileans were known for being uneducated people. So it was astonishing to everyone watching that these uneducated people would be able to speak in their mother tongue. In chapter 4.13, Peter and John have just been arrested. And it says, now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, that they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Who does he speak through? Everyone who has the spirit inside of them. No one was equipped and they knew it. And you might think, but they were with Jesus for like a long time. They knew everything that, that he said. And yet Jesus still told them to wait that he was going to give them the power and they believed it and they stayed and they waited and they worshiped and they prepared their hearts and then the spirit came. They were dependent on his power. And what we see happen on that day is 3,000 people come to know Christ. And we will see throughout the book of Acts that that number just keeps growing and growing and growing. And I've heard many people say, when I talk about sharing the gospel and being a witness and testifying to the truth, I don't have the gift of evangelism. I would do other stuff. But saying you don't share the gospel because you don't have the gift of evangelism is like saying, I'm not going to be hospitable to my neighbor because I don't have the gift of hospitality. Or I don't need to manage my money or return emails because I don't have the gift of administration. If you know anything about spiritual gifts, those are spiritual gifts too. I don't actually have the gift of evangelism, but I still share the gospel because Christ's love has so compelled me. He's so changed my life. I cannot help but testify to what I have seen and heard. And let me tell you, I do it imperfectly at best, and I chicken out a whole lot of times. But because I believe that God has called us to be his witness, that that is our role that is the work that he's called us to do as we grow in relationship with him. I want that to color all the things he asked me to step into. I want that to color how I am build friendships with my neighbor. I want that to color how I shop at the grocery store. I want that to color my days, this chief end that I would testify to what Christ has done so that others may know him too. How do we do this? The apostle, said, the apostle said, even when they were told to stop speaking, we cannot stop speaking of what we have seen and heard. What have you seen and heard? When you put your trust in Christ, what compelled you? You have the easiest tool in your back pocket, and it's your story. Your story of how Jesus changed your life. And when you walked in today, 
you're probably given this, or you'll walk out and you'll get this. And this is just how to prepare your story, how to prepare your story of how Jesus saved you in a way that others could know and respond. And some of you here, you might be just checking out the church and you're like, I I don't have a story because I'm not sure if I want to follow Christ. And I hope during our time, and as you are in this place, that you might be drawn closer to making a decision to follow Christ. But for those of you who know Christ, this is going to help you be able to communicate it. And I have found that when I have gone through and thought through how Jesus has rescued me, not only has it helped me know how to communicate it better, but it's reminded me of what he has done for me. There's no one here who, when something has changed your life, you do not go and tell somebody about it. If you read a book, good book, you're like, hey, you've got to read this book. I'll get it for you. If you see a good movie, oh, this movie changed my life. You've got to go see it. If someone sends you like a viral TikTok video, or you find one, you're like, this is hilarious. Everyone needs to know. Everyone needs to see this. I know you. I follow some of you. You'd love to show us the funny videos. I know it. It's like you're saying, hey, I was inspired. I want you to be inspired. I was changed. I want you to be changed. I was laughing. I want you to be laughing. I want to give away the enjoyable things that I'm experiencing. If Christ is the most important person in our life, and he is the one that has so changed our life and transformed our life, why in the world do we often hold the gospel like this? I think there are many reasons. We are afraid. We don't know how. We're not gripped by Christ. Or maybe we're just not totally convinced that it's true. Maybe we're not totally convinced that when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father, but through me, maybe we're not totally convinced that there is it really, really the only way. I was discipling a couple girls many years ago, college students, and I was talking with them about sharing their faith. And they really didn't want to. And as we began to talk, I got to the bottom of it because they had family members that did not know Christ. And they really didn't want to say that they were spending eternity away from God. And so we began to unpack scripture and talk about how we can believe it's true and why it's authoritative and why it's reliable. And over the course of that semester, they began to become more rooted in the truth and convinced that it was true. And over Christmas break, one of the girls, Jamie, came back and she said, you'll never believe what happened. I share my faith with my dad, and he trusted Christ. When you are convinced that the gospel is true, it propels you to speak, it propels you to go out, and people's lives are changed. Paul, Jesus speaks to Paul in a vision at the end of Acts. He says, do not be afraid any longer, which is so comforting to me because that means Paul was afraid. <laughs> And Paul, who wrote like half the book of the New Testament, if he's afraid, my goodness, we are all afraid, right? (laughs) But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. He's telling him, I have many people who are going to come to know me. Go speak. I am with you. I'm not leaving you alone. We're talking today about how the Holy Spirit empowers us to speak. But he does this as he also empowers us to experience his love and comfort and withness in this calling. We do not do it alone. 
One of the greatest joys that I have had in learning to give my life away is to discover how Jesus' presence with me also transforms me as I go. It happens in tandem. Our Heavenly Father is with us, so we can do it afraid. And let me tell you, I am afraid every single time. I get really pumped up and excited, and then I walk out these doors, and the Lord prompts me to tell someone or talk, hey, why don't you you have your neighbor over? Have a conversation. And I totally freak out inside. We will experience opposition when we want to testify of the words of Christ. Because when the Spirit empowers us to speak, He actually speaks through the opposition. He continues to move even when it's hard. And we see that throughout Acts. I counted 18 stories in Acts alone of the disciples facing significant opposition when they began to testify of his truth. Expect it, but expect God to move in spite of it. The first opposition we see is Acts 2.13. Others were mocking. When they started to speak in different languages, people were mocking and they were thinking, okay, like they're drunk or something. And this is where Peter takes a stand. He immediately stands up and he testifies of the truth. And this is not nearly the worst of the oppositions that we see, but I think it's surely the one that trips us up the most. They were mocking. They might not like me. They might make fun of me. They might cancel me. (laughs) We care far too much what people think of us. We don't just see God's word go forth in the midst of opposition in the early church, but we see it today in countless stories around the world and in our backyards. I want you to take a look at one story of how the message of the gospel came to the only country where you were required to be an atheist. When God wants to reach a heart, I don't care if they're the king, the emperor, or the guy lying in cardboard in Calcutta. God will reach out to seeking hearts. I'd like to tell you about the Albanian Beach Boys. We had plans for nearly every country in Eastern Europe, but none for Albania. I mean, nobody had plans for Albania. It was the most closed country on the planet, along with North Korea and Mongolia. Those were the big three that missiologists, the people that study missions, always talked about being so tight, so constricted. This is the only country in the world where it was officially and legally required that you be an atheist if you were a citizen. And if anything else, you went to prison or you were executed. I remember we were standing on the island of Corfu looking across, you know, the six kilometers to Albania thinking there's there's no way anything can happen there. This is like a prison for you know, four and a half million people. And uh, someone did have a plan. In 1985, they were going to take these either New Testament or Gospel marks. They were going to put them in the Ziploc bags. They were going to blow them up with air. Then they, at the right time, they would throw them in the water and hope they would float into shore. Now, can you imagine a corporation having that as a sales plan? They'd fire the guy who came up with that idea. And that's what Albania was like. So in 1991, all of a sudden, the Jesus Film office gets a phone call from a guy and said, hey, you know, we'd like to talk about having a Jesus Film premiere. Now, the Jesus Film is the story of the life of Jesus out of the Gospel of Luke. And this was a year and a half after the Berlin Wall fell. And so 
we went in August of 1991. They said, oh, we will take you to Duras. You know, it's a very nice beach there. And we walked out on the beach and I looked like Joe Tourist. You know, I had the camera and I had my jeans on and everything. And as we went towards the beach past the hotel, it's like everybody who looked at us, it was like this major parting of the water because prior to that, any unauthorized contact with a foreigner was five years in prison. And so literally, it was like the water parted in front of us. People just moved out of the way because they're so afraid to even be near us. But as we were there, we looked down to the left and here were these three guys. And I mean, these are like the kings of the beach. And, and you just looked at them, you go, they're not here to look at the girls. They're here so the girls can look at them. I mean, girls, take a look. You know, that type of, that type of attitude. And as they were coming closer, we were, I, I said to them, I said, they're not going to be afraid to talk to us. They were really into it with themselves. And all of a sudden they looked up and this one guy who we found out later, his name is Leonard. I said, hey, you're from the West. What do you do for your life? And, and, and I said, you know, I have the most amazing job on the planet. And I said, I get to go around and I get to tell people how they can know Jesus Christ personally, which gives them a, a relationship with God. And this flip attitude, like all of a sudden he says, oh. he turns to the guys, he says, wasn't it five minutes ago? We were talking, we said, we've got to find someone to tell us about Jesus. And he looked right at me, he says, will you tell me about Jesus? And for the next 45 minutes, we shared Christ with them, how they could know him. I mean, they're seeking God. They want to find out about Jesus. And I just happened to be there. I don't think that's a coincidence. I really don't. So fast forward to December, we came for the Jesus film premiere at the Palace of Congress. This is where the Communist Party laws were passed that resulted in the deaths of so many Christians in the country. And as people watched the Jesus film, we, we literally had 2,200 people in there. And as they started, people were just weeping, weeping. And as we looked out of the building, there was literally thousands of people waiting to get in. And as we were standing at the back of the auditorium, I, I, I looked down at the stage and all of a sudden from backstage, these two guys in army fatigues come out. And all of a sudden they look up at me and, I, and I'm looking down at them and they go, Don, Don, they kind of start running up the aisle. Boom, hug me. And it's uh, Leonard. And, and they said, we debated it for a month, but we've all received Christ. We've asked Jesus into our life. And I said, wait a minute, before we say anything, let me just ask you something. I said, that August when, when I was with you and we shared about Jesus, had, had you, is that the first time you ever heard anything about the Lord? He says, well, yes and no. And I said, no? He says, well, he says, you know, about five years ago, he says, it was really, and he kind of looked around. It was, it was, it was kind of interesting. He says, you know, I live in Duras, you know, and I work for the Coast Guard. And one day, it was five or six years ago, he says, all of a sudden, there's this thing on the beach. And I went over and I picked it up. And I opened it. And he says, and there was a book inside. And I go, wait a minute. Was it a, was it a New Testament, a Gospel of Mark? He goes, how do you know? I said, I know the guys that do the, did that. I said, what did you do? 
because I had to decide right then if I was willing to risk five years in prison and keep the book or just throw it away. I said, you kept it, didn't you? And he said, yes, but I've never told anybody until tonight. God will move heaven and earth to bring his word <laughs> to anyone who wants it, even in the most close country on the planet. I'm absolutely convinced there is no such thing as he that will never hear. If your heart wants to know, God will do it for you. Do you really want to know? John, who shares a story, him and his wife are some of the most uh, impactful people in my life. They were my mentors many years ago. And I learned much from him about what it is to take the gospel and have a passion to share Christ with others. I can't help but ask the question of myself at the end where he says, do you really want to know? Do you really want to participate? Do you really want to participate in what I'm doing? Because I use ordinary people to accomplish my extraordinary work to bring the gospel to the nations. Of the 8 billion people that live on this planet, there are 3.2 billion people representing 40% of the population of the world who do not only not know Christ, but they do not have access to the gospel. They can't just type on a website, hey, I'm looking for Jesus. Nothing's going to pop up. There's no churches on the corners. There's no way for them to know Christ unless God moves in the hearts of his people to tell them. John 10, 16 says, I have, Jesus says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock and one shepherd. I was in one of those unreached countries just a little, about a year ago. I remember talking with a woman who was working there, who was a believer, and asking her about her heart for the people there. And I said, what, what would be your elevator pitch for people to come? And she said, with tears in her eyes, there are 8 million people alone in this city who do not know Christ and have no access to him. And the youth are becoming disillusioned with their faith. And they're tur turning to secularism because there's no one here to shepherd them elsewhere. Jesus said in Matthew 9, 36 through 38, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. The Jewish festival Pentecost ushers in the harvest. It's the first of two harvests in their calendar year. And the second harvest happens in the fall with their fall festivals. And all of their spring festivals are fulfilled in Christ. And all of the fall festivals will be fulfilled when Christ returns. The harvest is now. If my brothers and sisters in Christ are faced with physical suffering, even death, cut off from families around the world for sharing their faith, for even just being a Christian— then I can risk my reputation. I can be willing to be awkward. 
What do I really have to lose? He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Our lives are found in Christ. When the Spirit empowers, he draws people to himself. Just as you saw in the video, people want to know God. In some of the most unlikely, unreached places, people want to know God. And people want to know God here. People want to know God in your workplaces, in your neighborhoods, in your families. And you might see a facade and you might hear words that maybe make you think otherwise. But deep within the heart of mankind, God has put in people a desire to know him. Only God can open a heart. But we can take the initiative in the power of the Holy Spirit and leave the results to God. Our role is to open our mouth. He speaks and provides the words, and he will change a heart. And you might wonder, where do I even start? And if you have, if you're taking notes, or you have a phone with a little notepad on it, I want you to take a minute, and I want you to think of three people in your life who do not know Christ. And just jot those down. How do we reach the nations? How do we reach the billions of people who do not know Christ? We start with the one. If we're willing to go to the one, if we're willing to trust God to share the gospel with those people on your paper, you never know what God might do. Ten years ago, I met two girls from Japan. Japan is one of the second largest, is the second largest unreached people group in the world. But it's an open country. So you can share the gospel. And I met these two girls, Emiko and Nao. They came to my home, and we hung out. We sat in Panera with Emiko. And I remember talking to Emiko about Jesus. And her barrier to knowing God was that she didn't believe the Bible is true. So I gave her a little Bible study, and I said, read this. This talks about the authority of the Bible, and let's talk about it next week, thinking it's going to be months for her to really come to the conclusion that it's real. And the morning that I went to go talk to her again, I remember just praying, Lord, open the blinders of her eyes to see you. Only you can do that. And God doesn't always answer yes to that prayer, but I showed up at Panera, and I said, okay, did you read it? What do you think of that? She said, I believe it's true. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well... <laughs> what does that mean for trusting Christ? She says, I'm afraid, but I'm ready. And she trusted Christ that day. And then a few weeks later, she brought her friend now, because now was curious about her faith. And so now is in my home, in my apartment, on my patio, and we're sharing the gospel with her. And she comes to Christ. And little did I know, because we sent them back to Japan, not really knowing who to connect them with, that in, that mean, in the meantime, God was connecting them and growing them. And a couple years ago, I see on Facebook that now is going to seminary. I was like, I have to know your story. And she came to Orlando in December, and we had pizza together, and she shared the story of how God gripped her heart and brought people in her life to disciple her when she went back, and God began to give her a burden to bring the gospel to her country. And so she's coming back to study, 
because not only does she want to bring the gospel to her country, she wants to figure out why it is that in an open country, they are still the second largest unreached people group. So her passion is to unlock something. You can pray for her as she begins a doctorate to do that. I was in the back patio of my central Florida home. I was saying yes to Jesus. Use my life. Overflow. I just want to talk about you wherever I go. And God is allowing me to be a part of reaching the nations. When Jesus says, you will be my witnesses, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, it's not a possibility. It's not like you might be my witnesses, you might get power on any given day, it might happen, it might not. It's a promise that he will do it. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead now lives inside of every single believer in this room. Even I, as I say that, think, ah, I don't really live like that's true. God, how do you fill me up more? How do I surrender more to you? How do I depend more on you? God, would you take away the vices in my heart that keep me from doing that? Whether it's sin, whether it's distraction, Holy Spirit, I depend on you. Would you fill me up to overflowing? This is what the disciples were open to. We're willing to just let God do the work in them. The Holy Spirit naturally wants to bring glory to the Father. He naturally wants you to know his love. He naturally wants to bring obedience. And he naturally wants to bring others to himself. But we can interrupt his work in our life through our unwillingness to participate with him. Whether it be our sin, our unrepentant sin, our hidden sin, our distractions, our disobedience, our just, I just want to do it my way. We can interrupt his plan for our lives. And it doesn't just impact us. It impacts the body of Christ. And it matters because if you contaminate a river, it stops producing life. And we need humble, obedient, repentant people in this place because we are all a mess, right? I mean, if you even put on the screen the things I said and did last week, you'd be appalled that I was here. But God, who is rich in mercy, uses broken people who are willing to be a vessel to offer his life to a hurting world in need of him. There's no one in this room who, when you are gripped by the love of Christ and his spirit is awakened inside of you, that you cannot find that everywhere you go, a rush of living water flows out of you. And people are not only drawn to the source, but they're drawn to Christ and they come to know Christ and then rivers flow out of them. Engaging in the mission of God overflows from a life connected to the mission giver. This is why his power was so astonishing in Acts. All those disciples, they walk with Jesus. They saw him. They saw him on the cross. They saw him rise from the dead. How could they not but depend on him and give their life for the kingdom? It is not just for the one who is vocationally called to be a missionary, though I am one. <laughs> it is for every person in this room because all of you have been placed for a purpose. You are in places that missionaries will never go. You are surrounded by people who will never hear unless you are the one who tells them. And that's not a should, that's not like fear, but like God may want to use you to do it. 
God may have called you to do it because he calls his people and the way in which the gospel moves forward is through his people. And when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, he inaugurated the age of the church and the age of the church is the harvest season. It's the time where you gather the people who would know Christ and then make him known so that all the ends of the earth will hear his praise. Every morning when I take my kids to school, I teach them how to pray to be filled with the Spirit. And I say something really basic like this. I'm going to say it to you. I have two living kids now. I don't think I mentioned that. <laughs> my son who was adopted and my daughter, he's seven. My daughter is four. So they're little. And if we miss it, if we forget. We always do it at the train tracks. If we miss it, my son will be like, Mom, we didn't do the prayer. <laughs> so I have them say this. I'm going to have you say this. You can say it to yourself. I want you to hold out your hand. Jesus, I need you. I cannot do today without you. Would you fill me with your power as you commanded me to be filled? Would you help me love like you love? Would you help me live like you live? And will you help me speak like you speak? And then I want you to look at those names that you have listed down. And I want you to say, Father, empower me with boldness. Give me opportunities to be your witness to these people and name them. I ask you to draw them to yourself. Amen. I'm going to make it really easy for you this week. You have this. So when one of your friends or a coworker or someone asks you, how's your week? What have you been doing? You know what you can say? Ah, really cool thing happened. I was challenged to write my story of how Jesus changed me. I'd love to share it with you sometime. And you'll find out one of two things. You'll find out if they're open to hearing and you may get to share it with them. Or you might find out the barrier. And if you find out the barrier, like, oh man, I just, I hate the church. <laughs> then you can ask questions. Be curious. Get to know people. Get to know their lives, their stories, so that you can enter in and be a vehicle of life. We do this together as a body of believers. Here's what I know. My heavenly Father, who by his Spirit, I can cry, and you can cry, Abba, Father, Daddy, has invited me to go to work with him. His only expectation is that I would just follow him and use his power. If he can use 44-year-old me, still immature in so many ways, then he can surely use anyone. And I've got a lot, a lot more places since I was 13. And what I have seen is a lot more people who don't know God who don't have access to God, who have never heard of Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen again and that they can know him and that he can breathe life into their lives. People are hungry for God. And lastly, there is no greater joy in my life than getting to pour my life out for the sake of the kingdom of God. 
We are transformed by the Spirit as we participate in His work and depend on Him. There is a river that flows out of a temple. And likely, when Peter took his stand to teach the words of Christ, likely he was on the south side of the temple because that's where the rabbis taught. And in that image that Ezekiel had, the trickle began on the south side of the temple. And I don't know if those are intended to be together, but I kind of think they are as I've studied. The trickle began on the day of Pentecost and the river goes out and it begins to flow and it goes into dark places and it brings life and hope to the nations. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be sitting by the side of the river just watching it go. I want to be in the middle of the river. I want to be in the middle of the river with you, together, going after the lost, going after the broken, going into the dark spaces. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Therefore, let your light shine before men so that they may glorify your Father who is in heaven. We cannot shine our lights only in here. Nobody will see it. We go into the dark spaces because we have Christ and we have him crucified and risen again in our lives and we have the power that has conquered death so we can have courage to go to the places where death is, where it's dark. I wonder what kind of life would flow out of this place if all of us walked in the power of the Spirit on a daily basis. You might walk out of these doors and you might be super excited here and you walk out of these doors and you're hit with something Hopefully not something like a car, like someone hits your car or something like that. But a fear, an insecurity, like, oh, maybe, maybe I didn't really want to make, say like, yes to Jesus. <laughs> yes, I'll go wherever you want me to go. And it will be hard. But that when you turn and look the other way and get distracted, you just say, Holy Spirit, I'm distracted. Would you help me? I invite you into that. I invite you into this sin that I just keep struggling with that just keeps coming up. Let's do it together. And as we go, as we go and take the gospel, he is transforming us and changing us and sanctifying us and making us more like him. He's not waiting for us to be perfect today because we will not be perfect until he returns. Let us speak the words of Christ as we live the life of Christ for his kingdom and his glory that the nations would know that there is no one like our God. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, we need you. We need you to teach us how to walk with you, how to be dependent on you. I need you to teach me how to continue to do that daily. And we need to be able to do it together. Would you help us as a body of believers be a light in this place? Would you help us as a body of believers love one another with the kind of love that people would look in and be astonished and they would want to be a part of the church of God? Fill us up today. And would you reveal the things that keep us from being filled and would we be so willing to bring those things before you? to not be afraid because you, Jesus, have rescued us and your grace is sufficient and it covers us and your power is made perfect in our weakness. Amen.